We're in uh, Philippians chapter 3, so go ahead and turn over there to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Trust you all had a good week. If you didn't, you're in the right place. So, and If you did, you're in the right place. Either way, you win. It's a win-win situation this morning. So, Just think of it that way. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Uh, this morning we want to uh, turn our hearts over to uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 to 16. And as we look at those uh, verses this morning, we're going to look at this, this great portion of, of Scripture probably this week and next week. Um, but it's obvious that as you read through the book of, of Philippians and even other places in um, the New Testament, that the Apostle Paul must have loved athletics because he uses a lot of terminology um, that relates to athletics. And um, he uses these analogies that relate to athletics or metaphors, things like that, to illustrate some kind of spiritual truth. And um, one of his analogies is that of running a race. He always uses that in relationship to the Christian life. And it's uh, the runner of him really in, in picturing himself as a runner, uh, as a Christian. And uh, the race is the, is the Christian life in whole. And uh, he uses this a lot of times uh, to, to bring out a spiritual point. And uh, the, the section we look at this morning is really a picture of the maximum effort as a Christian moves, moves along in this, in this race in order to finish the finish line. Um, a lot of times we think that, well, God is sovereign and he'll just take care of everything. Well, that's true. But that doesn't bypass our own efforts and it doesn't bypass our own, um, uh, you know, desire to press on in our Christian walk. And let's just look at this passage together in verses 12 to 16. <clears throat> I'll just read it and you can follow along. He says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, a uh, perfected, <clears throat> Excuse me, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also uh, has, has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And it's just a, a call to believers to enter into and recognize the race in which they're running. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So the theme here really is pursuing the finish line, pursuing the prize, pursuing what God has laid out before us. And the analogy here is, is of a runner who, in order to win and gain the prize, must run with all his effort. And the spiritual point here is the matter of, of pursuing that spiritual prize that God has kind of like a carrot dangled out in front of us. And Paul is talking about the Christian and the effort needed in our lives towards spiritual growth. See, don't think for one moment you become a Christian and you're taught, well, Jesus paid for all your sins and you're secure in Christ and all those things. So all you do is sit in your little lazy boy and, you know, pop popcorn into your mouth till the Lord comes back and watch TBN or ESPN or whatever you like to watch. That's not what the Christian life is about. God never saved us to be spectators. He just didn't do that. He saved us to be servants. And so, as we enter into this race, Paul is saying it's not something that comes easy. If anybody's ever been in a race, ever been in athletics at all, it doesn't come easy. Even for the guys that you look at that think, boy, you know, it just comes easy. Barry Bonds, he gets up there and just hammers one. You know, and it's just, it seems so natural. And yeah, there is a gifted, natural talent, I believe, from God that those men and women who are in athletics or are just very, just comes natural. But they also work hard at it. You know, Barry Bonds just doesn't sit around all year and do absolutely nothing and just show up for the game. 
lot of people think he does that, but that's not the case. You know, I'm sure he works hard at his skill. And the same thing here, and, and we've just been given last week Paul's testimony, you might see, and the experience of his own conversion. And from his viewpoint in verses 4 to, 4 to 11, which we looked at last week, by the way, um, we studied them in quite detail, and even before that, we looked at verses 5 and 6, and he, he talked about all his credentials, and he put them in this prophet column before he was a Christian. He said, all these things I've done. I was circumcised the eighth day, nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, you know, Hebrews and Hebrews, as to the law, uh, Pharisee, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. In other words, there's nothing that you can say about Paul that was, you know, lacking in any way. And yet when he came, when God slammed him to the dirt on the Damascus Road, and he had an encounter with the living Christ, he began to realize in that second, he thought, wow, everything that I've gained in this life, I have to take from the, the prophet column and I have to put it in the lost column, because that's what it's going to cost me to know Christ when he was confronted with Christ. He saw all those works that he'd done, all those good things. And they were good things, a lot of them. But he had to count them as loss. That's what he says, in effect, in verses 4 to 11. He says, when I look at Christ and the value of knowing him, and I look at the salvation that he's provided for me, and it's only about Jesus Christ, I took everything that I once gained and I count it for the manure pile. And so you have there in verses 4 to 11 an insight into the attitude of Paul's heart. See, on the, on, in the book of Acts, we just had the outworking of it. We saw what happened. The writer told us, here's what happened physically to Paul. He was thrown to the dirt and he was blind and, and it went on with the story. But we don't know what was going on to his heart until we get to the book of Philippians. And this little portion of scripture tells in verses 4 to 11 what's going on in his heart, the attitude that was in his heart. And he began to realize, I've got to count all this stuff as loss in order to gain Christ. And we broke that down and we said verses 4 to 11 was the lost column and verses 8 to 11 was what he gained. And that's what we looked at last week. And there were five things that we mentioned that he gained and benefits that we gain as we come to know Christ. The first one was the knowledge of Christ. Secondly, the righteousness of Christ, the power of Christ. Thirdly, the fellowship of Christ, the glory of Christ. Those were the five things that we talked about last week, the benefits of our salvation. Now you stop and you look at those benefits that we covered last week and you say, man, if I have all these, then this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. I mean, if, if somebody had the knowledge of Christ and the righteousness of Christ and the power of Christ and the fellowship of Christ and the glory of Christ, that person would have to be, what? Perfect. That's what people concluded. And that's what the Judaizers, they were looking out from the outside into the church. And they were telling these new Christians, well, in order to really be perfect, you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law. That's what really counts. And they said, you know, look at the Apostle Paul. He thinks he's perfect. Look, he's rattling off these things he's done. And so what we're going to look at today is Paul kind of slips in a disclaimer here. <laughs> he just wants everybody to understand you can have the knowledge of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the power of Christ, the fellowship of Christ, and the glory of Christ, and still yet not in this life be perfected. Because that's what some people were saying of him. It might lead someone to, to assume that the beginning for him was also the end. In other words, even in our Christian walk, well, you become a Christian and that's it. You're perfect in Christ. What else do you have to do? It might lead someone to believe that the start is also the finish of the Christian race. And having come to Christ, Paul was instantaneously made perfect. Nothing more to become anything. Nothing more to seek. Nothing more to pursue. He just arrived at spiritual perfection. Like I said, the, the Judaizers kind of taught that in some degree. They said if you were circumcised and you kept the law, then that was the answer. And you could assume if you met somebody who had these five benefits, you would say, man, they're, they're doing pretty good. But that's not what he was trying to say. He wants us to know that he's not perfect. Isn't that good? I mean, it's, it's refreshing. That's what's refreshing about the Word of God. It tells us the truth. It doesn't shade it. It doesn't, oh yeah, this apostle, he was just perfect in every way. No. 
Paul had things going on in his life that came out of his own flesh. And so he begins in verse 12 and he launches into this disclaimer of any spiritual perfection. He wants us to know that he's not perfect. That he's not reached moral perfection. That he hasn't reached spiritual perfection. Even though he's a new creation in Christ. Even though he has a new heart and a new disposition before God. Which he strongly should desire holy things. That's any Christian should do that. Even though he had union with Jesus Christ and a new mind in the mind of Christ. Even though he has new standing before God. And that he's accepted by God and entitled to heaven in the righteousness of Christ covering him. Even though all those things are true. Even though he has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. Who's the very power of God that raised Christ from the dead. Even though we have a promise of future glory and indwelling spirit. He wants us to know that, you know what, he's still game he, he can still he can still be temptable he can still fall to sin he's not perfect and nor are we he's still a possessor of the unredeemed human flesh as we are he's still a sinner yet saved by grace so any thought of perfection in our minds we kind of have to put that aside And we must favor the pursuing of perfection as a believer. Because if you don't recognize you're not perfect, what's going to happen? You're going to assume you are. And if you assume you're perfect, what more is there, right? I mean, I've met a couple people that thought they're perfect. And we laugh about it, but there's actually denominations through history who've taught that. And it flies in the face of Scripture. Second Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if we were perfect, we wouldn't have to grow any. We would already have arrived. And so Paul is saying, Hey, I haven't arrived. There's a growing process to this. We're all in this together. And we all need to grow in our walk with the Lord. He said, Well, when you say, Don't you receive the knowledge of Christ? And Yeah, you do. You receive the knowledge of Christ. You also receive the righteousness of Christ positionally. It's, it's put on your account, the Bible says. You receive the power of Christ in your life. You receive the fellowship of Christ in communion with Him that didn't exist before. And you receive the glory of Christ. Not yet, but we will receive it. And so there must be growth toward that goal. We must kind of strain our muscles to reach out and grab that prize. The pressing toward the mark that's what he's saying. And some believers just say, well, why bother? Who cares? I mean, you teach us that, you know, I'm already entitled to heaven. I'm already guaranteed of these things. He promised me. He won't break his promise. My name's written in the book of life. So why bother to grow? Who cares? Well, in one sense, it's kind of a silly point to make. Because if you're a new creation in Christ, you're going to grow, right? I mean, we know that. But let's make the point anyway. I think there's a couple reasons why God desires us to grow. First of all, it glorifies Him. It glorifies God. It glorifies Christ. Secondly, it really verifies your own salvation. It verifies that you're saved. When you see growth in somebody's life, then you know that they're, they're growing in Christ. If there's no growth, then you begin to wonder, is this person dead spiritually? kind of like, you know, when you buy these flowers sometimes, bulbs. I mean, this thing looks dead. And you're supposed to put it in the dirt. And you're supposed to, you know, wait till spring and it's supposed to come up and be beautiful. Well, I'm here to tell you, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And it may be the gardener you're looking at this morning, but, you know, I planted a bunch of those things last fall or whatever, and I got like two flowers in the garden to, to prove it. But I'm thinking, what happened to the rest of them? I mean, they didn't give me any buds. They didn't give nothing. So in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? They looked dead, and they were dead. There was nothing there. There was something wrong with that bulb. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's on the other side of the world. Maybe it sprung up on China or something. I don't know if you have to plant them a certain way or what. But, you know, when, when we come to Christ, there's, there's regeneration. There's growth. It proves that you're saved when you're growing. Thirdly, it, it really adorns the truth. In other words, it literally lets you wear your Christianity on the outside. As you're growing in Christ, people see a difference in you. 
It grants you assurance, fourthly. It preserves you from the sorrows and the tragedies of spiritual weakness. We read this morning in Hebrews where a loving father chastens his son. It spares you from that when you're, you're in the race and you're growing. You're not just sitting on your laurels doing nothing. Sixthly, it, it really protects the cause of Christ when the world sees a Christian who's growing in their walk. It produces, seventhly, spiritual joy and usefulness in your life. You're able to minister when you're growing as opposed to just being a lump on a log and doing nothing. Last thing, it enhances your, your witness to a lost and dying world. I mean, when you go to somebody and you say, oh yeah, you know, Jesus changed my life. And they look at you and go, what are you talking about? I don't see any change in your life. You're the same person I knew in high school. You still do all the things, you act the same, you do everything. So I don't know if, if you understand this, but I don't want that kind of God in my life. That's what they're saying. They want to see a God that transforms somebody. And so Paul here is like a runner in a race, and he's doing just that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but one receives the prize? And he says, Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. He goes on to say, In all things... They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, talking about the, 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 kind of the Olympic Games, you might say, of their day. They got this silly little wreath they put around, but they were, they were the only one that got the wreath. But they do it for a perishable wreath, he says. It's kind of like when you buy your wife, you know, Valentine's flowers, you know. I don't know about you, but, you know, mine bit the dust yesterday. Came home, and I'm looking in the trash. There they are, all the roses. They're, you know, they're shot. They're dead. Throw them out. Well, that's what this reef was kind of like. It was like, you know, hey, it was something at one point, but it's perishable. But he says, we and imperishable. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way, yet not as without aim. And in verse 27, he goes on, he says, I buffet my body and I make it a slave. He says, I do everything I can so that I won't be disqualified. I want to run this race with maximum effort, with maximum uh, conformity to all the rules. I want to make sure that every... I is dotted and every T is crossed because I don't want to forfeit something in the end. I don't want to run half-heartedly. I want to run all out. I don't want to violate the rules and be tossed out of the race. I don't want to take spiritual steroids, as you might say. I want to stay within the rules. I want to do what I'm supposed to do. And what happened here was the Apostle Paul was coming to a point and some people were saying, oh, they think that Paul's perfect. There's people today that think that, that claim that. They come from a Methodist or Wesleyan background. They believe that there's a certain point in your spiritual growth where you're actually perfect spiritually. You've attained it. You're sinless. It's moral perfection. It goes back to the whole Armenian kind of a, a belief system that came out of that. And what the Apostle Paul does here is he blows, he takes this, this devastating blow to this doctrine of perfectionism that even existed in his day. There were some people that believed if you attained a certain amount of knowledge that somehow you were, you were perfect before God. Now positionally we are, but we know what? We know physically in this flesh we're not perfect. We all sin in a myriad of ways, probably daily. And that's the grace of God that has worked out in our life. But Paul wants us to understand that he's talking about a runner here. He's talking about somebody that understands what it means to be a runner. And I have a little video clip I want to show this morning, just a short little thing. And it, it talks about a guy who's a runner. And I just want you to sit there and kind of relax and just watch this. It's just a couple minutes long. And it kind of depicts the Christian life as we know it. So go ahead and uh, run that run out. It has a picture of a cross there with uh, a bunch of watches attached to it. And, uh, you know, I know that's just a fun little clip, but one thing that we want to look at this morning is what's it mean to pursue this prize? What's it mean to be in the race? Uh, a lot of us, um, you know, are in the race. We do know Christ. But are we running in such a way that is pleasing to Him? And what I want to look at this morning is, is just begin to look at probably, we won't get through them all, maybe we will, but um, six basic elements that are 
necessary in order for us to pursue this prize that God has set before us. And they're listed out there for you. The first one there is an awareness of the need to pursue a better condition. An awareness of a need to pursue a better con condition. Notice I didn't say an awareness to pursue a better position. I said an awareness to pursue a better condition. Because positionally before Christ, we're all that we're going to be before God in Christ. Our position is not going to improve, but our condition should improve. In other words, we're not what we should be in Christ. None of us are. We all have room to grow. And through God's grace, that will happen as we trust Him. But see, if you're a perfectionist here this morning, if you think you've already arrived, then you're sitting here saying, well, you know what? I don't have any awareness of a need to pursue anything because I've already arrived at my spiritual plateau. Maybe you haven't, but I have. And so, you know, I'm already there. And I'm just here to tell you, anybody who thinks that they've reached a spiritual level of perfection has no awareness of pursuing anything more than that. They're going to stop right there. Basically, the people who are caught up with this perfection mindset, you might say, they get to a point where they think they've arrived in their spiritual walk. And maybe they wouldn't say they're perfect. But they think that they've arrived at a spiritual level where there's nothing more for them to pursue. So they become content. They become complacent with their condition. And worse than that, they spend the rest of their life, instead of pursuing a better condition, what do they do? They end up defending themselves as perfect people to people who aren't convinced they're perfect. <laughs> so it all starts with this awareness of a need, or you might say a healthy dissatisfaction. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. And that's where it starts. It starts with an awareness that you haven't arrived. You have to start there. I mean, Paul the Apostle, 30 years after his conversion, is saying, you know what, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not where I should be spiritually. I'm not at a level of spiritual maturity in Christ that pleases God yet. I mean, that's amazing to me. And you know what? You look at any one of our lives, and we'd have to conclude the same thing. We're not where we should be spiritually. None of us are. That's why we need to pursue the prize that's before it. I haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. None of us are morally perfect. I haven't reached Christ's likeness yet in my practice. I haven't reached God's perfect standard of living. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm still in process. And so are you. So is the whole church of Christ. And so there still should be a pursuit in my life. Whatever we achieve spiritually begins really, I believe, with this dissatisfaction. The minute you begin to think that you're what you should be in Christ, you've reached a very, very dangerous point in your spiritual life, I'm here to tell you. The minute you grow content with where you're at in your spiritual condition, you've reached a very dangerous point. It's a point where you find yourself almost insensitive to sin, where you're defending yourself when you ought to be admitting your own weaknesses. So spiritual growth, this whole pursuit, it starts with the simple recognition, you know what, I'm not all what I should be. It's a runner at the beginning of the race, and he's saying, you know what, the whole idea of this thing is to get to the end. And I'm not there yet. I'm still at the starting line. I'm still there. I'm in the blocks. I've got to run this course that's set out before us. Some of us maybe be halfway through the race, but you're not done yet. And so Paul saw it right. He knew that he had what he had in Christ. He knew all the benefits of his salvation. But he says there 
in verse 12, not that. And it's kind of a, a disclaimer right off the top. If you're thinking I'm anything, he says, not that I have already attained. That word obtained means to grasp or to receive or to see, uh, seize it or acquire it somehow. And he goes on there, he says, or have already become perfect. And Paul says, I haven't become perfect yet. I'm not already perfect. It's a perfect passive, and it, what it means, it's, it's, it's kind of a, uh, something that happens in the past with, with ongoing results. He says, I've not already become perfect. In other words, become complete, become morally and spiritually like Christ. He uses that word several times throughout here. And he's emphasizing, hey, you know what? I'm not all that I should be. And you say, but Paul, you know, you have the knowledge of Christ. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 says, we know now what? In part. Someday we'll know as we are known. But right now we don't have all knowledge. You say, but Paul, don't you have complete righteousness of Christ? Put to your account, yes, he does. But in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, it says, let us cleanse ourselves from our filthiness of our flesh. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You say, yeah, he had righteousness, but it hadn't perfectly worked out practically in his life. Positionally, we're righteous before God, but practically, you know what? We have a long ways to go, beloved. You say, but Paul, don't you have the perfect power that's in Christ? Sure, he has that, but 2 Corinthians 12 says that he also had to have a thorn in the flesh. They kind of kept his ego in check. You say, Paul, don't you have fellowship of Christ? Yeah, but it isn't perfect fellowship. It won't be. The Bible says that we don't even know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit who makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered because of our own ignorance, that happens. So even though we're positionally one with Christ, our fellowship still is hindered by our physical, sinful flesh being here physically on earth. Paul even had the glory of Christ. But he also understood, hey, I'm waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with his glory. And so Paul starts off first, he says, if you want to pursue this prize, you not only have to get in the race, and that's what the video was all about. And think about it, right? Are you in the race this morning? Have you taken that watch, that sin, and given it to Christ? Nailed it to the cross? Are you still trying to get it off yourself? Are you still trying to improve yourself before God so that people will be impressed? That's not salvation. Salvation is God coming into your life and transforming your heart, giving you new desire, giving you new wants, and, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a race and you, you long to be there. It's not like somebody grabbed you out of the stands and threw you on the track, now run with a gun to your head. It doesn't work that way. But the first step in pursuing this prize once you're in the race is an awareness of the need to pursue a better condition. Secondly, he says here that we should give maximum effort. That we should give maximum effort to pursue this prize if we're going to do it effectively. So first of all, you need to, to, to know that there's a prize out there. You need to aware, be aware of that, your need for that. And then secondly, you need to pursue it. Verse 12, look at what he says. He says, the second half there, But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I press on, I run, in other words, I follow after, I pursue, I chase. It's used of a sprinter, and the word means aggressive, energetic endeavor. It's like he's running with all his might. There's nothing left in him to run with. He's, he's giving it all. There's no quietism here. There's no just be happy and be in Jesus kind of a thing. No, it's, there's no crucify yourself, just let go and let God and God will take care of everything. That's not here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about straining every muscle in your being to win this race. 1 Corinthians 9, pursuing the prize with all your might. 1 Timothy, it's fighting the good fight. 
as we read this morning, it's, it's running the race to win out of Hebrews 12. Laying aside every weight of sin and anything that will easily beset us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I pursue, I chase. He's not saying I've arrived there. He hasn't in the finish line yet. He's still in the race. And you say, well, what's he after? Verse 12 says, I'm pursuing in order that I may lay hold of. Oh, he's after a prize. He's after something specific. Yeah, he is. He wants to get hold of something. That verb there means to seize or to grasp. Well, what are you running after, Paul? What are you, what are you trying to do? Here it is. He said, I'm after that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You say, what's he saying here? He's saying, I'm pursuing the prize so that I may lay hold of that which was the reason was Christ was laid hold of me. What do you mean by that, Paul? What he means is I'm pursuing the very thing that was the reason that Christ pursued me. In other words, my goal in life is consistent with Christ's goal for my salvation. And you stop and you say, well, why did God save you? What's your purpose in life? You know, you don't need to go read the purpose-driven life to find out your purpose in life. You need to read the Word of God. It's here very, very plain. He saved you for a purpose, and that purpose of Him saving you, what Paul is saying, that same purpose that He saved me for, that's the purpose that I live my life now for. The reason Christ redeemed me has become the goal of my life. My will is now his will. That's what he's saying. Well, what is it? Turn over to Romans. Romans chapter 8. It's a very familiar portion of Scripture. Romans 8.28. tells us. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his what? According to his purpose. Talking about Christians here. Now, as we go on here, verse 29, he says, for whom he foreknew or chose, he also predestined. This is believers. What? To be conformed to the image of his son. Why were you saved? Why did God choose you and then save you? In order to make you like who? What's it say? His son. To make you like Jesus. Exactly. What's the goal of the Christian life then? It's the same goal for which you were saved. It's the same goal that Christ reached out to you and saved you. His goal was to make you like himself. And all of a sudden, that same goal transforms over to our own Christian walk. And now we're in the race and we're saying, why are we running this race anyway? What's at the end? Why do we have to do this? We do it because that's our purpose. Our purpose is to run the race so that we can become like the Son. That's what it's all about. Becoming like Jesus Christ. And you're in a lifelong pursuit of Christ-likeness in your walk. You may be sitting here this morning and you think that you've arrived spiritually. I dare you. I just dare you to put yourself up against Jesus Christ. I guarantee you will fall short in a myriad of ways. All of a sudden you realize, well, I haven't quite arrived yet. See, Christ's likeness is the goal. It's not to become, you know, like your neighbor or, or, or like the pastor or the elders or Billy Graham or whoever your favorite, you know, spiritual person is. That's not the goal. If that's your goal, you're going to be sorely mistaken one day when you read in the paper or you find out somehow that that person has fallen and now they're no more in ministry or no more doing what God wants them to do. It happens every day. That shouldn't be where our eyes are. That shouldn't be where our focus should be. Our focus should be on Christ. It's the likeness of Christ that's the issue here. 
And that's why we were saved. That's why He redeemed us, that we would be like His Son. That's the point. Marvelous truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says that we've been saved in order to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why He saved us. See, a lot of times people think, well, He saved us so we wouldn't go to hell. Well, that's a result. But that's not the reason He saved us. So Paul says, look, I make the maximum effort. I'm willing to put in the maximum effort because I'm pursuing with all my might the very thing which Christ pursued me. Why did Christ pursue Paul? Why did Christ slam him into the dirt on that Damascus road and redeem him that one day? He did it so he could make him like himself. The goal was to make Paul like Christ. And that's the goal in any believer's life, to become more like Christ. Is it a worthy call? Sure it is. Does it require a life's commitment? Definitely. Definitely. So he says, I run to win, I run with all my might, I pursue hard after the goal which, which I was saved. The whole reason I was saved, that's how I'm living my life now. So what's necessary to pursue this prize? First of all, you have to have an awareness that you're not where you should be. There's a better condition to be had. Secondly, you have to put forth maximum effort. It demands all that we are. And we have to give everything we have to run this race. Thirdly, in pursuing the prize, it's required that there must be a focused concentration to pursue that better condition. See, not only do you have maximum effort, but you need focused concentration. Any athlete knows when you're running in a race, if you fix your attention on anything other uh, than like the finish line, finishing, you're, you're going to mess up. You know, you can't be running a race going, hey, how you doing? You know. That's why when, when racers are done and you say, well, how did you feel when, you know, so-and-so was in third place, you know, kind of kicked it in and he was right on your tail. And the racer says, I, I didn't even know he was there. I run my own race. I run it to do the best I can in my race. Everybody else is clouded out of the issue. I don't care where they're at. Because if I know if I put forth my maximum effort and I'm focused on the finish line and I finish, then, hey, if nobody's around me, then that means I'm number one. I'm not, I don't care if they're you know, a split second behind me or two miles behind me. It doesn't matter at that point. And that's the kind of concentration we're, we're talking. Have you ever tried to run looking at your feet? Try it. I saw, I saw a woman the other day pushing a cart with babies in it. She had a book propped up. She's pushing it down the sidewalk. She's kind of going this. She's going all over the place. I'm thinking, how important can this book be? You have children in your, in your little carriage here you're pushing. You know, I wanted to stop and say, what are you doing? I mean, it was crazy. She was focused. Don't get me wrong. She just focused on the wrong thing. I mean, you know, she was going all over the place. You can't walk or run and look at your feet. You're going to fall over. Your focus is straightforward. That's the goal that's ahead of us. And that's precisely what he's saying here. Making maximum effort, there's this concentration beyond you, beyond so you're looking at the finish line. Look at what he says in verse 13, back in, in Philippians. He says, brethren, that's a, that's a, a term of affection. Okay? And uh, he, he really wants to use intimacy here with the Philippian believers because maybe the Judaizers were having some effect here. Maybe they were making some headway into their thinking. And he wanted to kind of move them away from, from that side of the, the belief system and, and more in line with what his was. And so he reaches out to them with a, a term of endearment. And he says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. In other words, I haven't arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead. I mean, this is kind of like almost the third time he's saying this. The idea of forgetting what's behind and moving on. Why does he keep on saying it? Because he's trying to make a point. He throws out that disclaimer once again. Hey, I haven't arrived. I know what you're saying about me, but I'm not perfect. 
I haven't laid hold of it yet, he says. I don't care whether those Judaizers claim to have it or not. It's impossible. That's kind of what he's saying. But he says, one thing I do. But one thing I do. Look at that little phrase there. He's focused like a laser beam. I believe this man had an incredible amount of concentration. And any great athlete will tell you, you know what, it's that level of concentration that's needed to win. Some people don't have that. It's those totally focused people who succeed in life. You know, the world is full of, of people who are, are clever at a lot of things, but successful at nothing because they're, of their inability to focus their life. Someone said they're like a guy who jumped on his horse and rode off madly in all directions. There's a lot of power there, but that's kind of an impossible thing to do. A lot of energy, a lot of fury, but there's no progress. And we have to stop and we have to look at our, our lives and our walks and say, okay, we know there's a need there. We know that we're trying to put forth maximum effort, but are we concentrated in the right way? A lot of people aren't. They're not focused. The enemy just has a heyday with them. Because he knows he can throw anything into their life and it's going to break their concentration because it's, they don't have any. So they're constantly chasing this, chasing that. Embracing this, embracing that. There's no stability. That's why the psalmist prayed, Lord, unite my heart, give me one thing. That's why James talks about in the New Testament being a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. You're blown all over the place. You have no direction. Well, here, the Apostle Paul was a man with focused concentration. He says one thing, this one thing. Well, what is it? Tell us what it is. Look at verse 14. He says, this one thing I press on toward the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the one thing in my life, he's saying. That's the one thing that makes a great man. Someone once said, just do one thing right in your life and you'll be way ahead of most people. <laughs> and that's true. Just do one thing right. Don't spread yourself so thin that you can't do anything right. Just one thing. I think we need a, a new level of concentration in our own spiritual walks. Now this focused concentration is a result of a negative and a positive. Look at verse 13. He says, forgetting those things that lie behind me. That's the negative. That's the negative. And then he says, turns to the positive, he says, reaching forward to what lies ahead. See, willing one thing means, number one, negative, you eliminate your past. You eliminate it. Don't look back. The enemy wants you to because he knows if you look back into your past, you'll see things that maybe weren't correct, maybe weren't right. And he can just mess with your head even more. You've seen races where the runner is running and he looks back over his shoulder and pretty soon, boom, somebody blows right by him. Don't look back. That's what Paul's saying. It's irrelevant. And, and what he's saying is anything that happened back there is not relevant for today. It's not relevant for this race. Make a break with your past. I mean, that's good advice. It really is. See, legalists are always looking at the past. It's the, the basis in which they have kind of the, the status quo. Um, the Judaizers in Galatia wanted to dig up the past and push it off on the Galatian church. And Paul says, you know what? Don't let these guys entangle you in the yoke of bondage from which you were liberated. Don't go back there. What's he mean by the past here? What's he talking about? 
He means simply that, the past, forgetting those things that are behind. What things? Everything. Everything. Good things, bad things, achievements, virtuous deeds, great accomplishments, spiritual ministries, as well as bad things. Things like sin, iniquities, failures, disasters. He says, you know what? Forget it all. You're in a new race now. That's not going to count toward finishing this race. Because it has nothing to do with your immediate future. It has nothing to do with what we're doing now in this race. Absolutely nothing. We've all know people, and even we've done it ourselves sometimes, we live on past victories. Can't celebrate the value of your past. You should never be debilitated by your past sins, your iniquities, and the burdens of guilt. And yet most people are so distracted by their past, that they can never even function on the racetrack. God wants us to press on. Clear vision is given to somebody who forgets his past, moves on. You, know, you hear people in church, not just this church, any church, well, you know, it's just not like it used to be. I remember the good old days, and they go on and on. You know, we're involved in everything. We were doing this, and we were doing that, and, you know, boy, it was like this, and it was like that. It was so great. Who cares? Seriously. That's, I mean, that sound may sound irreverent, but it's not. It's who cares? That's, that has nothing to do with your future. It's absolutely irrelevant. If you focus on that, it's going to paralyze you. I mean, can you imagine a runner coming up to the blocks in a sprint? And he's sitting there and he's getting ready for the race. And he says to the guys around him, You know, I just want you to know that I've won a lot of races in my past. I mean, I've run, won, won a lot of them. And boy, I run really fast. I, I've, I've run so fast in my past. I mean, you can't imagine how fast I've been able to run. What are the guys going to say? Who cares? Let's see what you can do in this race, Bubba. You know, let's, let's, let's see what happens from this point on. That's what counts. We don't care about what races you've run in the past or how fast you say you can run. We want to see what actually plays out. You say, get in the blocks. This is another race. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You don't want to hear somebody get in the blocks and say, oh, you know, I've had so many sins in my past and, you know, on and on and on. Last night I ate a hot fudge Sunday. That's going to weigh me down. I know I'll never be able to run this race. I know I'll never be able to succeed. I don't even know why I'm here. I mean, why would you want to run a race with somebody like that? Nobody's interested in all that stuff. I mean, and it sounds kind of callous in a way, but I, I'm, I'm truly telling you, if you're going to focus on your past, it's going to paralyze you. It's going to limit your spiritual growth. What God is interested in is what we're doing now and where we're going tomorrow, where we're going today, how we're going to finish out this day. That's what interests uh, God. It's not what we've done in our past. It's not all this, this stuff that goes on, you know. Churches are full of people who are holding all kinds of grudges and bitterness and perspectives and all this junk from their past and it just paralyzes them spiritually to the point where they just feel totally unworthy about anything. I mean, you know what? If I sit down for five minutes and start to recollect my past, I can get pretty depressed. The Bible says, put your hand to the plow. Don't look back. Move and pursue the prize that's before us. And that's what he's saying here. Verse 13, he says, reaching forward. Let's go. Let's move. It means to stretch every muscle in your body reaching out for that prize. 
I mean, your extreme effort is in view here. It's not like, oh, there's the prize, I think I'll take it. No, you're stretching as hard as you can stretch. There's focus, concentration, there's maximum effort, there's an there's a, a awareness of your need. And your past is just history and you realize that because you're in a new race. That's what we're called to do. Recognize your need. Use maximum effort. Focus concentration. Number four, another thing that's needed here is spiritual motivation to pursue that better condition. Spiritual motivation. Look at verse 14. He says, I press or I pursue. That's continuous. It's present active. And it means I continually press toward it. I don't try it one day and then quit the next. And, no, it's not that. It's continuously bearing down. That's what that word means. What are you bearing down on, Paul? The goal. What's the goal? To be like who? To be like Christ. That's the goal of our, of our Christian life. The same thing he saved us for, that's what we're to pursue, Christ-likeness. And so we bear down on that goal we, like a focused laser beam. And in verse 14, he says, here's the motive for the prize. I mean, that's it? The reason we're doing this is for a prize? That sounds a little cheap. No, it's not. We run the race to win the prize. So that you bear down on the goal for the sake of the prize. Well, what's the goal? To be like Christ. What's the prize? To be made like Christ. It's one and the same. That's why he says you bear down on the prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's going to happen when the upward call comes? We're going to be made like who? Christ. Immediately. We're just boom. Talk about winning a race. So the goal of my life is to be like Christ. That's the reward of my race. We're to reach out with all our effort to be like Christ. First John chapter 3 says that someday we'll be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. What motivates us? The upward call. And we have to live in the light that one day Christ is going to return for His church. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be caught doing something that's not honoring to Him when that happens. I want to be caught serving Him in some way. Glorifying Him in some way. Becoming more like Christ in some way with my life. Fifthly there, I pursue the prize In order to do that, we must recognize divine resources. We must recognize divine resources. Verse 15, he says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. This is kind of an important thought here. He says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect. Well, what's he mean by that? You just said that he wasn't perfect. Why would he say now that he is perfect? We know he's not talking about a practical perfection. We know that he's not saying, no, I am perfect. He's not saying that. It's a play on words. It's almost like he's saying, as many of us who are positionally perfect, that is, we've been made perfect in Christ positionally, yet not practically yet. Someday our position will match our practice when we're glorified. But right now it doesn't. That's why we sin. But as many as are perfect in, in the positional sense should have this attitude. What attitude? The attitude of pursuing the prize. I think he's kind of being sarcastic here. You know, he's saying, yeah, you know, those Judaizers, they say they're perfect. But we truly are perfect, yet not in practice yet. It's a play on words. And we have to realize that, you know what, there's divine resources to help us do that. He says, have this attitude. In other words, think this way. Intent on this. Set your minds on this. What? Pursuing the prize. We need to make sure that we're, we're doing that. 
that we recognize that God has to do this in us. It's not something we can do. We have to rely on God, truly, to make that difference in our life. But it takes recognition of a need. It takes effort. It takes concentration. It takes motivation. It takes the divine help from those around us, from the Lord, when we fail, to have that right attitude, to keep on pursuing what God has been and saved us to do, to become more like his son. Verse 16 there, however, what it really means is nevertheless, kind of closes off there, nevertheless to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. In other words, you know what? We're making progress. Don't give up. We're seeing progress here. Fall in step. And that's what he wants us to do. Those six things, and I guarantee you, as we do those, I say six, there's five. Anyway, those five things, and as we do that, what's going to happen is God is going to bless the growth that we have in him. You say, well, what's needed as far as ingredients for that growth? Very simple. There's four things. The word. The Bible says as newborn babes, we need to crave the word of God and grow, grow by it. Don't ever think that you've arrived and that you've heard every sermon that there is to teach and you know every book of the Bible, you know, and there's no need for you to come out to Bible study because after all, you've arrived spiritually and you're at a level that's above everybody else. Don't buy into that. It's a lie from hell. And it'll, it'll have complacency in your life and you'll begin to just kind of flatten out spiritually. God calls us together as a church to study his word for a reason because we grow as a result. All of us grow. Second thing is prayer. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians and he points to them and he says, Hey, you know what? Night and day we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. Prayer is, a, is an ingredient that's needed for our growth. The word prayer. Thirdly, follow an example. In verse 17 of, of Thessalonians, there he says, Brethren, or in Philippians, join in following my example and observe those who walk in according to the pattern that you have in us. Find somebody you can pattern your life after. Somebody with flesh on you can look at and say, you know what, I know that they're not perfect, but they have some qualities in their life that I think I want. And I want to be a, kind of a, work on a discipleship relationship with that person. The last thing it takes is trials. We don't like to hear that, but it does. First Peter 5.10, after you've suffered a while, the Lord will make you perfect. James 1 says, trials have their perfect work in our lives. So with all that said, we just need to remember that, you know what, we are in a race. And we need to set aside anything that would hinder us from running that race with all our ability. Let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Just as we bow our heads and our hearts before you, Lord, I'm reminded of an illustration. A lot of people have died climbing the Alps, falling off of precipices and different routes that they tried to climb up these mountains. And at the foot of one of the mountains there, it was a, a climb that was being attempted. And there's a grave there. And it's the grave of a man who tried to climb to the pinnacle. And he fell off at the very top to his death. And the tombstone there was very simple. Basically stated his name. Then it simply says in little little print, he died climbing. He died climbing. Lord, I pray that as Christians, we would die climbing. That we would die striving to be more like Christ each day. Lord, take the complacency in our walks, in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and just throw it out. Lord, help us to grow uneasy. Help us to persevere in our walk. Help us never to grow at ease in this thing called the Christian life. Because as soon as that happens, the devil can just play games with us. Father, we want to, buy, we want to be used by you in every way that you desire to use us. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would press on in our attitude and our love for you, in our ministry. And Father, we pray that if there's anybody here today who's yet to enter the race, I pray that they would cry out to you. Be merciful to me a sinner, that they'd repent of their heart, repent of their sin, 
turn to you for your grace. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.